Welcome to The White Shift, a show where we call white women in to the critical and urgent work of uprooting and unlearning racism, one story at a time. This is a show for white women asking, how can I do better? In season one, each episode features the story of a white or white passing woman who is taking up the daily practice of recognizing the harm whiteness has caused, how they continue to benefit from it, and how they are committing themselves to the work of anti-racism, racial equity, and justice. We are White Women, and your hosts, Sally and Alexis. We aim to share more about ourselves, how we arrived at this work, and why we continue to do it throughout upcoming episodes. This work is made possible by our educators and the ultimate freedom fighters, Black, Indigenous, and women of color. Women who bear the weight of both sexism, queerphobia, and racism in America. We understand that nobody is free until queer, trans, Black, and Indigenous people are free. Hi everyone, it's Sally. Today we're speaking with Jenna Arnold, author of Raising Our Hands, How White Women Can Stop Avoiding Hard Conversations, Start Accepting Responsibility, and Find Our Place on the New Front Lines. Jenna is many things. She is an educator, an entrepreneur, an activist, and a mother who lives in New York City or the suburbs of Philly during pandemics. Oprah named her as one of her 100 awakened leaders who are using their voice and talent to elevate humanity. And she was a national organizer for the Women's March in 2017 and continues to serve on their board. But she's incredibly humble about all of that, and I only mentioned probably a quarter of it. And would sooner tell you that she just likes to ask big questions. She spent the past few years crisscrossing the country having closed-door conversations with American white women on everything from identity, our role in society, where we get our news, all while formulating some critical questions and uncovering a little more about why it's so difficult for us to have discussions about race and why 53% of us voted for Trump in 2016. We sat down to speak with her at the end of January this year, She was putting the final edits on her book, which officially launches today. So if you're interested in learning more, you can buy it wherever you buy your books. We recommend Black-owned bookstores, of course, a list of which you can find on the resources page of our site, thewhiteshift.co. None of us knew what monumental worldwide shifts were about to take place over the coming months. That said... This conversation could have happened last week. To start off, where are you originally from and what has been your own personal journey to becoming an activist? And do you consider yourself an activist? I'm originally from Elkins Park, Pennsylvania, and I spent my grade school years at Abington Friends in Jenkintown in the suburbs of Philly. And do I consider myself an activist? I don't... I 
genuinely don't know the definition of activist. People are often like, oh, you're doing so much activist work. And when I'm exhausted and people are like, what do you do? I sometimes lean on that word. But I don't I don't actually know what that means. It's the same thing that when I was teaching in the classroom and people said, oh, you're a teacher. How does that feel? What does that mean? And I'm often like, I don't actually know how to quantify teaching. I don't consider my students' test scores a reflection of my work. Um, I only care about when, whether or not my, and they were first grade at the time students vote in election when they can or help an old lady cross the street now I hope they do deeper work as reflected in my book but I'll never be able to see those moments and therefore I'll never be able to measure them so do I consider myself an activist I have no idea because I don't know what it means Um, but am I somebody who's incredibly passionate about what's happening in the world and have a deep-seated belief that Everybody has something to contribute to advancing humanity and helping humanity to spend more time with our compassion and with our empathy and in the places that make us feel more human and more part of something bigger than ourselves and more purposeful and more worthy. Yes, I love to be a facilitator of those moments. So you have written a deeply and necessary book called Raising Our Hands. How White Women Can Stop Avoiding Hard Conversations, Start Accepting Responsibility, and Find Our Place on the New Front Lines. Why did you write this book? Because I was looking for a piece of literature like this for myself. So there is centuries of thought leaders and educators and people who have raised their hands in the past to really dive into the depths of injustices, feminism, anything across the spectrum that would help enlighten me on what it is that I didn't know, but I I didn't actually know where to start. So I knew that I wanted to dive into Baldwin and bell hooks and and critical race theory and and really understanding what intersectionality is and I I know that that's a lifetime of work. There's major departments at major universities dedicated to each one of these subjects for a reason. But as somebody who feels like it's all happening too fast and the speed of the world and the speed of the headlines and the speed of harm couldn't wait for me to catch up in a way that felt like was broad enough and big enough. So I found myself starting to scratch the surface of diving into concepts like white supremacy and patriarchy and privilege and proximity to power. And every time I sat down with text like that, often from educators representing marginalized populations, at this point in my life, in this moment of time, I was like, oh, that's why. Now I get it. And I would then turn around and have conversations with my very large and loving family. My mom is one of nine. I have a tremendous amount of aunts and uncles. I'm the oldest of 25 cousins, and we spend a lot of time together. And every time I tried to bring the conversation and the learnings that I was seeking out to our table, there was no, there was no entrance point. There was no place for um, the conversation to start because oftentimes I found people just don't even like the two words white and supremacy to be next to each other, let alone for their niece to say, hey, let's go get ice cream on the beach and let's also talk about dismantling white supremacy. They're like, ah, like just the short circuit a little bit. So so I, I was looking for a 101 manual that said, here are the very key, very urgent things that you need to know right now, knowing that 
I will have to dive into all of this work, these rabbit holes for the rest of my life. I always say I'm in first grade on this subject and maybe I'll graduate to second grade at some point in my lifetime. And there's very obvious limitations for why I I could never actually get to a point of full compassion and full empathy and full transparency. But what I know is that I've seen so many hundreds of thousands and millions of women say, I don't know what I don't know, but I don't know where to start. And so I wrote this book as a little bit of, I use the analogy of, um, this book is meant to open the white picket fence and say, hey, come on out, readers. Come on out, Jenna. Let's read A White Fragility by D'Angelo. Let's read Cargill's work. Let's read Sayed's work. Let's, there's so many different educators who have so much to say, but there's a vast amount of people who don't think, one, they need to do the work. Two, is that the right work that they're supposed to be doing? Thank you for that answer. And I relate so well to it, especially around the words uh, white supremacy and those two words together. I can remember the first time I heard those two words put together, and it was in 2015. The first time I heard an activist actually mention the word white supremacy, and it was Linda Sassur. Uh, We were at the Justice or Else rally demonstration. It was 20 years since the Million Man March, um, and it was led by Farrakhan. and And it was the first time that I actually heard her you know, talk about dismantling white supremacy. Before that, we talked about dismantling the machine, like it didn't even have a name. So I, I wonder about, you know, branding sometimes. It's like, how can we use language to actually welcome people in, invite people in and make it less, I guess, scary and defensive? Uh, you write in, in the book that only in recent years have I begun to develop a practice of checking my privilege, catching my biases, putting fail-safes in place to prepare for blind spots, and developing language for difficult dialogues. What have you learned about your blind spots, and what fail-safes have you put into place? What have I learned about my blind spots is that they are endless, and it is shocking how how they surface. The fail-safes that I've, that I've put in place are having spent so much time with this type of content, it's given me two things. One, the freedom to say to oneself when I mess up, which I do constantly still, hey, no one talked to you about this in second grade. It's not an excuse for you not to know right this instant. But because I've been able to sort of lift up the corners of this rug and be like, oh, that's why this happens. Or, oh, that's why I thought it was just poverty. And this is why I thought just poor people on the corners and it was their fault. And this is why I did. And so how I was sort of scaffolding information, I'm able to look back and be like, that's why I sorted it the way that I did. Again, it's no excuse, but it it gives a little bit of clarity for how I got there, which then does a couple of things for me, both as an author and someone who will continue to have these conversations with people and as a mother, is trying to unpack that scaffolding and not let my children climb the same ladders or get in the way of somebody else who's climbing that specific ladder. And then the fail-safe is this this permission to have messed up. And for for me, that's always been a hard thing to do because I was always supposed to deliver A's and stick the landing and perform according to society's checklist, broad checklists of, you know, sweet enough, nice enough, kind enough, bring a bottle of wine over if someone has you over for dinner, send thank you cards, 
you know, find a find a partner, buy a house, get a dog, have kids, and then what? I don't know what happens after that, but um, disease and death, right? Don't be a nuisance. To fail was never um, an acceptable exercise. And now coming from the startup space where everyone really doubles down on failure. So there's like that lingo and that jargon that is very much overused, but in the space of being a human and, and challenging your character, it's looking at the system and sort of being able to point to why those things happened the way they did or why I had that assumption about Jewish people or why I had that assumption about blonde haired girls with blue eyes and be like, oh, that's probably why I have this moment, this thought that's not a healthy and good thought. And then giving myself the freedom to be like, uh, it's okay that that you're having it. I, I think the word permission mm-hmm. is not not a not a pass by any means, but it's just the witnessing of your failing mm. versus the, oh, it's okay to fail. And it, I use the analogy of there's some people in my life who will always be late, who will always share a secret they weren't supposed to. And they'll say, oh, I'm sorry, but I apologized. And I'm like, no, the, uh, the, sorry does not fix it. Mm-hmm. So, so I changed think, behavior fixes it. That's exactly right. Mm-hmm. So, so I think this idea that it's probably not you know, we don't want to allow ourselves to do this, but I think it's the idea of like seeing why we have failed and then trying to see some way out of it and knowing that that probably first attempt out of it, those have been very large hurdles that I've overcome. Giving ourselves permission um, to fail is is so important, especially when you think about how we got here and how it's impossible to unlearn 400 years of racist conditioning overnight. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, that 400 years in the next, you know, two minutes? For me, the exercise of writing this book, particularly in chapter three and diving into very specific forks in the road, not necessarily the forks in the road, but ones that felt like they resonated to me like, oh, this was a hard left turn. This was a hard right turn to get us to where we are today is to really know them and understand them. Our textbooks do a terrible job at it. Having been trained as a trainer, I went to two, both my undergraduate and my graduate degree are in elementary education. And I can tell you with absolute certainty that at no point did we talk about implicit explicit bias as an educator, let alone, oh, let's talk about what we did to the indigenous and here is how you teach it. I, in the research for this book, I was going through all of um, some of the boxes that I kept from teaching and I came across a poster that I had made. So this would be 2003 that I had made as a first grade teacher in Los Angeles Unified School District. And And the poster said, Indians, Indians dressed in brown come to visit Plymouth town. And it was, I like framed it in brown construction paper, orange, and then yellow. And I laminated it for year after year after year. And, you know, looking at that, none of it is true. None of it is true. None of it is true. And I don't know if I were still in the classroom, what kind of professional development I'd have access to, to even just say, uh, Miss Arnold, we don't use the term Indian anymore. And Miss Arnold, they were never visiting Plymouth Town. That was their home. I don't know if that would still be on my bulletin board in my first grade classroom. 
the months of October and November. I don't, I don't know how we unlearn this if we don't hold our textbooks accountable, if we don't hold our universities accountable. But at one point, and I pose this question in, in the book, when was a first grade teacher ever supposed to have learned that she was perpetuating lies? And I don't know the answer to that. I do believe that what's happened since 2016 is a massive tectonic shift that makes everybody much more wobbly and therefore they then have to question gravity and their relationship to it. So now we're having these conversations on a podcast. You mentioned having knowing the first time that you heard white and supremacy is two words next to each other. I I don't know when that was. You know, my four-year-old, <laughs> we had parent-teacher conferences yesterday, and my four-year-old, uh, one of the teachers was uh, telling me that my daughter ever was in the class teaching the kids about what the Europeans did to the indigenous. Nice. And, uh, and she said, not in a sort of like, can you curb it type of way, but this might be a little bit over our pay grade as teacher's head. She said, and the students became really horrified and they, and, and they came running to us trying to figure out how to navigate this information. And I can tell you, I have not been as blunt with my daughter as I will be as she continues to age and mature with what our history looks like. But I, I think just, starting to talk about it with our children and change the conversation from Thanksgiving isn't just about gratitude and all the things that we're grateful for. Thanksgiving is this very specific, it's forcing this conversation. And I am so excited, so excited about what that one spot in the calendar is going to require of us. Because how many articles did I see in November 2019 of here's how to have conversations about what really ha what Thanksgiving actually is and what it really means. I mean, I saw them in all the major outlets, which means Thanksgiving 2020, they're going to be in even more places. So I, I think, I think it, any opportunity to force the conversation of, I actually don't know what I don't know, which is what my book is asking us as white women to do is to ask the really hard questions of ourselves and to not be the perfect performers that we've been raised and been asked to be and do. And so to just find this new space of discomfort. You talked about how, how is a first grade teacher expected to learn this? There's no point in sort of our education system or upbringing that is intentionally making this available to white children growing up. Um, is there a moment where you start like started to shift your thinking where you recognized your own power, privilege or implicit biases? There was the first moment when I came face to face with inequity in a way that was digestible because I saw the inequity and then I and then the solution was also very clear to me. I was in Mexico and I was in a van full of kids. Um, 
we were on, let's pretend like a five or six lane highway, and there was a sudden bottleneck a couple hundred yards up, and everyone was honking, and drivers were getting agitated, and um, it was just, you know, that standard, no one wants to be in this traffic moment. And as we inched closer and closer and closer, as we all do as curious um, humans, we look to see what caused the bottleneck. And as I looked, I remember exactly which row I was sitting in, in the van. I was sitting in the, in the back row uh, against the right wing. Window. And I looked out the window and I saw the cause for the bottleneck was a gentleman in a wheelchair who was wheeling his chair down the road, but there wasn't a shoulder on this highway. So he was taking up, I don't know, three feet on the very, very outskirts of the outside lane. I had this moment of like, oh, oh my God, oh my gosh, there's somebody on a highway. He looked very in control of his situation and the direction he was headed, you know, despite the fact that there was thousands of cars behind him that were getting increasingly more impatient. And so as we went whizzing by, I was like, where is the next on? Well, like he has to get on a sidewalk. There has to be a sidewalk. And I remember thinking like, 10 feet, there wasn't an on-ramp or an off-ramp for him to get into a safe place to continue to go in the direction he was headed. Not for another 100 yards, not for another 300 yards. And I remember thinking to myself, like, wow, there's sidewalks in this part of this one specific country that doesn't have ramps for people who have equipment like this um, so that they can be mobile. And I remember thinking to myself, like, gosh, that's such a simple solution, just ramps, just Rams. Um, and I have since been back to Mexico many times and it seems like most of their sidewalks have ramps, but, but I remember having this moment of like, wow, problem and a very, very, very clear solution. Now, what would it take to have actually gotten the ramps on those sidewalks? Having worked in government, I recognize how long some of those processes can actually take. Um, but that was my first like problem and there's an easy solution. Well, there must be a lot of other problems out there that might also have solutions. I wonder if there's things that I can do to participate bringing those solutions to fruition. I know you have a career in international development and you talk about like white saviorism. And I would say I am probably a recovering white savior myself. I think you, like me, were kind of lured by the the problems of other people uh, versus sort of what's going on here. What shifted in you and when around the problems not out there <laughs> or over there? It's it's in me. It's in my people. That was a multi-step process. The first one very much was there is struggle and that struggle exists elsewhere in the world, maybe a little bit here in the United States. Like I grew up in a real just comfortable, I think it was three bedroom, one and a half bath home in the suburbs of Philly. But like I didn't see a lot of struggle in my day to day life. So when I learned about people and places that were um, challenged, they often came to me from international organizations. 
it would be the UNICEFs of the world or Save the Children. Looking back and having built nonprofits before, I think they probably just were, they just had a really tight marketing strategy sort of buttoned up. It's not that there weren't phenomenal organizations working. Um, they knew their target audience. Yeah, they, they knew their target audience, but they were also, all their programmatic work was abroad, but all their dollars came a lot of their dollars came from the United States. So they just had very robust development strategies where um, the irony is my mom worked in the labor and delivery floor at the University of Pennsylvania um, during the crack epidemic. And she rarely came home and told those stories to me. I sort of knew of about it, but I was a little bit, I skewed a little bit too young. It wasn't until I became an adult that I was like, hey, mom, like, what what was the work that you were doing then that we that we started diving into it for me to have like a real appreciation for some of the frontline work she was doing as a labor and delivery nurse um, in, in that particular community. But, yeah, it was always like somewhere else. It was never in any sort of intimate proximity to where I was. Um, and so those organizations just had, you know, really, really nailed the marketing strategy. They still do. So I always had this understanding that it was in places that I don't have access to, that there was, that people were struggling, that didn't look like the people that I saw at the grocery store. When I got my degree in elementary education, I started teaching in Miami. That was my first note of, oh, wow, there's some real challenges here in this country. So I started teaching um, in Coconut Grove, Miami, and I was um, a fifth grade teacher and I had a very large classroom of like 30, 35 kids. And it was this one um, zip code in Miami, 33134, had blocks that were blighted and in experiencing tremendous poverty and in that same zip code a mile down the road when I was leaving Miami they were growing they were building two new Ritz Carlton towers same exact zip code and that's when I was like wow there's a dichotomy here wow something's not adding up and I used to and I'm not proud of this language but I used to say to people gosh there's so much work for me to do in my own backyard I didn't even realize it I also lived in that zip code as well and so that's when I realized like I I I I want to there's stuff here that has to happen. There's stuff here that I'm responsible for um, both contributing to and then also getting out of the way of um, the, the development and the progress and the improvement. So that's when I was like, okay, so that sequence of marketing development departments at some of the big nonprofits targeting me with their their pamphlets and their brochures and the stuff that I saw on TV of refugee camps and displaced peoples in different parts of the world. And they're really like finding those um, cherub kids. Um, and then my teaching experience in Miami was like, oh, wow, there's stuff here. And then I had a... a series of professional stops between teaching fifth grade in Miami, where I am today, that was in the nonprofit foreign policy space, leading into the election in 2016. And then the morning of November 9th, the day after the 2016 presidential election, I was sitting on my rug in front of my couch. And for like only the third time I can remember a tear popped out of my eye socket, not 
dripped, but you know, uh, like those Tom and Jerry cartoons as a kid mm-hmm. where when they would cry, the tears would like somehow <laughs> yes, it, project out of, their, out of the, their faces. And I've only, I can only think of three times that that happened. And that happened to me that day. And I was like, I'm missing something. I'm missing something. I'm missing something. If one person was able to see past all of the verbal and language harm and suggestions of this particular candidate, let alone 61 million people, I'm missing something about the state of this country and the state of my fellow human whom I share air with and I share area codes with and I share and running water with. Like I'm 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 at fault here. And the work I have to do is clearly on myself within my family. I have to go back to my roots to see what I don't know. Can you talk to us about the parts of yourself and your life um, and how it shows up and how you show up to the world now and your family life that you've disrupted since becoming more racially aware? In talking about biases or... um, or talking about assumptions, or talking about how much more women labor more than men. That is weekly conversations in my home with my kids, with my family. And I would say over the past three years, the first six months, first year, no one wanted to hear it. Nobody wanted to hear it. Um, And they were very uncomfortable with it. And then it was like that second year where I was experimenting with like, okay, well, you definitely don't want to talk about white and supremacy together. How can I get us to talk about it? And then be like, oh, this is what we've actually been talking about. So in a lot of my research, I'll pose questions about what it means to be an active citizen. And I'll ask participants, like, what does it mean to participate in something beyond maintaining your job and maintaining your life and caring for the people that you love? Like, what what's that other stuff? And then oftentimes there's the donating money conversation, which I love when that conversation comes up because then I will able to chase it a little bit. And ultimately, after 10 minutes of conversations related to what it means to exchange currency, I can then say, oh, we've actually just been talking about reparations. That's what that theory and that concept of an exchange of a of, of a give or a give back is is a reparation. And that's what that word is in the headlines. And, and I find that, um, for particularly for audiences who prefer to be well-versed in the language and well-versed in the concepts and well-versed in the way that they're going to have to sit with their discomfort, it's best to sort of back into some of that, um, so that they don't shut down. These are big and prickly ideas. So, so that was like year two. And then now year three, I'm, you know, having very casual conversations with my daughter about how I went to, I spent some time on the Navajo reservation asking for permission to tell a very specific story in chapter three that takes up a sentence and a half. But I really, I wanted to make sure that I was asking for permission in the way that felt most honorable 
to them. And, and so when I was explaining to ever that I was going to New Mexico and this is the work and the conversations that I'm having, and then for her to then take that into the classroom with the rest of her four-year-olds and, you know, she's interpreting it the best way that she can. And then for her to just like casually bring it up. So at the parent teacher conference yesterday, they're like, well, we talked about what the Europeans did to the indigenous, like they as educators, as we all do, have so much that they still have to learn on this subject. But like that's how it's starting to participate in my day to day life that the parent that the teachers are bringing this up as a that's what your your daughter's a messenger of that complicated subject um, in a very age appropriate way. Uh, we didn't know how to handle how she was bringing this up to the rest of her class. Um, but clearly this is like, you know, kitchen table talk for you. And, 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 and I think that goes back to your question of like, well, what do we do with this 400 years of being placated? And I call it white lies very intentionally in the book. Um, I think it's just like, okay, well, let's actually call it a genocide Let's yeah. let's actually call it a genocide and let's pretend when my daughter's five and we can talk about mass killings in ways that feel age appropriate. That's what we'll be doing. Speaking of language, this country in, in, in particular really doesn't like to admit mistake. Mm-hmm. Crystal Fleming, who wrote How to Be Less Stupid About Race, asks this really pertinent question around the presidential election and the resistance, I guess, this uh, fever of, of resistance, progressive white women are embracing. And she writes, how can white women possibly think that they can lead the resistance when they can't even speak to their own families about why they voted for Trump? Mm-hmm. How is that possible? Yeah. Um, and I would, How did we get here? I, I would even wonder if there's another... L- the additional layer to that question be like, if they can't even talk to their families about race, they can't even talk to themselves about it. Right. So it's, there's the like, how are we really confronting ourselves? Which is what I am desperately asking in this book is the front lines are not marching, donating to your, to the ACLU, calling your Senator and, and, and voting like that's, the required work of wanting to have some resemblance of a democracy. If you want to actually advance humanity and take a step toward something that feels more just and more equal, we have to like hold up the mirror to ourselves. And to the author's point, I found in my research progressive white women to be the most resistant to that question because they're very good at professor that I worked with, uh, Dr. Priya Singh out at Stanford. She coined the phrase uh, cognitive acrobatics, which is the performance that we all do to convince ourselves that we are or aren't or we know or we don't know. It's just that backflip of, oh, I'll just follow the dishwasher because I can do it better than him. Or, oh, Uncle Joe is just, he's old. He's 75. Let's just, let's just let that one run out. Like, I don't feel like it. Or the, oh, I have friends of color, so I don't have any racial biases that I have to work on. Progressive women in these listening circles that I've hosted have been the most resistant to having the difficult conversation because not only were they performing for everybody else in the room about their level of, um, I am 
so over the term woke. You can say it. Wokeness. Yeah, you can I, say it. It's but, right. Um, consciousness, racial yes, consciousness. That yeah. that they are so committed to performing that, not just for everyone else in the room, but primarily for themselves. Where does that come from? Oh, for me, it's so obvious. One of the American ideals is sorted and neat and put together. Ordered. Order. You know, just this idea of like everything has its place. And let me tell you, in my kids' craft closet, everything has its places <laughs> as far as their mother is concerned. So I appreciate the benefits of order. Um, and I source this in the book. So one of the forks in the road that I identified um, as being relevant was when this woman, her name, Chris, her name is Christine Frederick in the fifties and sixties was working with her ad agency husband, like think, think mad men. And he was trying to sell appliances to, for his customers. He had some big appliance as a customer appliance company. And so they were just broadly talking about the dishwasher or the mixer. And she said, no, don't, don't, target this to like the general household and the man target it to the woman. And so they built this major marketing campaign um, with primarily white blonde women with like judged ponytails looking like the Betty's home. Their Betty is that their home is simply put together and simply clean. And the bun cake had just come out of the oven just in time for the husband to walk through the door. Like it all just looked so easy. And so this idea of, and perfect. And perfect. She says that to maintain, to maintain an orderly and happy home, you should buy every device you can afford to maintain sort of the optics of perfection because we're mm. sold that you're supposed to be perfect. Mm. And that was happening in the 50s and 60s. But like it's still happening today. But but it's been up until definitively up until I would say the election. And then you even see it in the in the first lady, like a woman who is just like you know, very pretty all Effort- the time. Effortlessly put together. You talk all about the, the effortless white woman, I think oh, is I a book that, that you cite yes, in your book yes, too. Yes. So do you think that now that, you know, racial awareness is in vogue, it's like we're just yes. pretending that, yeah, we know all about um, it because this is trending. And so we can't possibly do I think it's, look like we're like, yes, unknowledgeable. Yes, yes. I think that's the case for progressive women. But when I go into other listening circles with, well, I'll call them like, centrist independent purple communities or like the pink red communities no they come out pretty quick and are like hey jenna i don't know is a black or african-american whereas like you just don't hear that in progressive circles because even though they have the question because everybody has the question about that um they're not gonna they're not gonna ask that question because they're supposed to have known the answer to it. And then if there's other marginalized populations represented in the room, forget it. The progressive women will just take each other down about like, who knows Who more? knows the most? Who knows the most? Yeah. Damn. But the, so this is the part I don't understand. If we all were brainwashed with this, you know, madman marketing, everything mm-hmm. has to be perfect, whether you lived in the South, in the North, in conservative, you know, in progressive states... I'm trying to work out like why there are some women who feel freer to admit that they don't know something Mm-mm-mm-mm-mm. about Mm-mm-mm. you know okay. racial awareness I got you. I got you. or in a, or you know being wanting to learn right because they've never had to perform this anywhere 
Whereas if you live in Brooklyn, or it's performance. If you yeah, live, yeah. It's keeping up with the Joneses. It's right. like this is cool, that's so right. I need to so, be so, look cool. Right, exactly. So if you it's high school again. If you live in any well, <laughs> what it is 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 part of like the American blueprint of like this is how you're supposed to perform. It, if you live in the Presidio, if you live. Gar- Carol Gardens, if you live in like any metropolitan area that's blue-ish, there's a level of performance around it. Mm. If you live in other conservative places, it's just not discussed. So it's not like you're seeing anyone perform and therefore the bar isn't set for what your performance is supposed to be. That's exactly my experience. Sorry, I, pan- the, I just, the penny dropped. Mm-hmm. I, so I'm Australian and... And I've always known that I've had a different lens looking at race in America, but I never understood what a pass I had because I asked questions all the time because I didn't know the history from my black friends, you know, like, why is it like that? I was so free to ask because I, mm-hmm. I'm i not from here. That's right. Well, because you you're not being judged on not knowing. Right. And then when people are like, well, isn't it something we should all know? And the resounding answer is yes, yes. bolded, italicized, like, underlined, you know? yeah. the whole thing. However... We teach what we did to the indigenous in second grade. We teach, we talk about enslavement in fourth grade. How are we supposed to really talk about those things in the ways that can help us connect the dots from mm-hmm. then, which while we're like, oh, no, that was just a time in our glossy pages of our textbooks to this exact moment being a country that incarcerates more people than any other com- than the rest of the world combined it's so hard to make that connection so that when you do say to people well enslavement is still alive today slavery is still alive today they're like what are you talking about we elected a black president <laughs> oh god So sometimes I feel like in these conversations, there's like a missing piece that goes from like internal self-awareness to having external conversations mm-hmm. with like in listening circles or with families. How do you like combat the performance in your everyday life besides doing like the big, big work of like writing this book and like doing these listening circles, just like how you take up space like in the world and how you operate, particularly in a progressive city like Brooklyn, where a lot of us are living in gentrifying neighborhoods. Like, what does that look like on a day-to-day basis of just how you are in the world? It's terrible. I, I don't, I'm, I wrestle with it every day. Every single day. It's, I remember when I was in grad school, so I got my degree in international education and development with a focus on um, post-natural disaster, post-man-made uh, disaster regions. And then my focus was children involved in armed conflict. And so I would go to school and um, the study of peace is really the study of war. And um, I would sit in a classroom and we would look at what the LRA in Uganda is doing to the limbs of children under the age of six in rural villages. And then I'd leave and have to go pick up my dry cleaning or justify throwing out a slightly bruised apple. And I couldn't, I can, I could not reconcile it. I could not reconcile it. I still can't reconcile it. And, and I spent years in therapy unsuccessfully reconciling it. Um, I spent years calling psychics unsuccessfully at reconciling it. In this moment, I still have not been able to reconcile it except in just seeing 
joy, you know, joy come from faces constantly, no matter where they are, that like, oh, humanity is, we as a species are worth saving. We as a species are worth continuing to ask the question. So like I've been wrestling with it Mm -hmm. ever since then. I live in Chelsea in New York City on a major artery uh, of the city. So it two lane road in New York City. And on the other side of the wall where I put my kids to sleep every single night in a temperature controlled bedroom, there are people who have no shelter that evening. And that has meant that I have walked in the building with tears, not being able to reconcile it. So there's two answers to that question of one, which is what kind of space do I take up today in these conversations? I'm very, very intentional that I only have something to offer well-intended white learners. I, I will never obviously speak on behalf of any marginalized population. I will never speak on behalf of any other human being. This book is really only about my experience and how I'm connecting the dots to my um, privilege and and proximity to power. So I've, I've learned how not to take up space, which is a new learning. I think that is probably something to answer your what do we do differently um, to undo 400 years. But like just the fact that I have a, a thick, warm jacket to wear in the middle of February, I think about it when I put it on. And, and I don't, I don't, I don't know. And people have, you know, there's plenty of terms around it. White guilt, like, sure. Yes. To all of those things. And every time I am trying to help somebody who needs it, am I being a white savior? I Sure. I'm white and I'm trying to save a circumstance, provide a meal, do something to show up to help another human being. So it's like, yes, to all of the things that anyone can use to describe me, having this conversation means that somebody is not listening to another educator on the subject. And that's a very dangerous place for us to be. And I wrestle with it every single day, particularly with a book like this that's coming out particularly with a book like this. And um, I'm haunted by it. I'm, I'm very frightened by it. But every time I sort of meditate on like, why this book, why me, why this book, why me? I'm taken back to all the conversations I have had with my activists, friends who represent marginalized communities, whose names you've probably talked about at length here, who have said to me on so many occasions, what's going on with your cousins? Mm -hmm. Go get your people. Now, my people don't want to be gotten, but I can say with absolute confidence they're all raising their hands because they're like "Hmm, maybe I am missing something Mm -hmm. and sometimes they're like okay what is this white supremacy thing awesome if you're asking that question do not pick up my book like fast forward jump two spots to you know you're ready to go to the 201 and that's not where I am this is this book about this is this book is about and for white women who are like, I don't think I see color. Mm-hmm. And that there's two very different audiences, mm-hmm. two very, very different audiences. Um, and, and so I'm writing this book for that demographic, but I'm also like taking heed in what Malcolm X said, which was in the beginning of his career, he was, he was asked by a white girl down south 
what what she can do, what white people can do, and he responded with nothing. And then later in his career, in his autobiography, he outlines how he wishes he had her phone number because he figured out what white people can do. And white people, according to Malcolm X, should build white affinity groups and have conversations with each other about these difficult concepts. And, and listen, I think there's something to be said. If I slap on a set of pearls, like I can enter spaces in a country club. If I start talking about, um, my husband, um, and his bar mitzvah in Jerusalem, I can enter conversations. If I, there's just places that I can get into and like elbow my way in so I can drop important language and invite more people in that some of my other dearest, dearest, dearest friends who are the wise ones of today don't and can't do. I just posted a Malcolm X quote uh, two days ago in response to uh, a black gay friend of mine who's a designer who wrote, only talking to your black friends about race doesn't make you an ally. It makes you a spectator to their struggle. And I wrote in the comments, this is on Instagram, um, you know, louder for the people in the bl- in the back. And then I wrote, quote, I tell sincere white people yeah. work in conjunction with us, each of us working among our, among our own kind. Let sincere white individuals find all other white people that they can who feel as they do and let them form their own white groups, all white groups. To work trying to convert other white people who are thinking and acting so racist. Let sincere whites go and teach nonviolence to white people. Malcolm X, the autobiography of Malcolm The problem is, is like how to do this without taking up space. I right? know, right. You know, yeah. so it's, it, it just. Well, I think how to do this without taking up space is to center black women a lot um, and also, if we can, in proximity, because I think you mentioned the word proximity just uh, a few minutes ago, and I've been clinging to that word uh, in this work because it's how I got here and it's how I became more racially aware moving to Fort Greene when it used to be a predominantly black neighborhood, you know, 16 years ago. And I was the only white woman on the block, one of three. I wasn't the only one. Um, I exaggerate. But I learned the story of racism in America on the stoops of my neighbors and by listening to my roommate, you know, who grew up in East Flatbush and her father was killed and uh, died of AIDS. That's what made me start to ask questions. So I think, yes, we can have all the knowledge. We can read all the books. We can watch all the civil rights documentaries and be scholars even. But until we're in relationship with the marginalized, I don't think anything's going to change. I don't know if I fully agree. I I remember at one point in the book, I was starting to run numbers about like, what would it take for South countries as segregated as it's ever been? Mm -hmm. Um, New York City public school system is the most segregated in the country. I mean, it's just atrocious. Like we are just still extraordinarily segregated Mm -hmm. and might not be train tracks anymore, but it's like two or three blocks off that train track. Mm When people are like, well, I want to engage. I want to ask the hard questions. This is what Malcolm X was saying. is like, go do your own 
work. When men come up to me and they're like, hey, can we talk about me too? I'm like, scram, you guys go have your own conversation. Come back to me when you have a really hard question. Mm -hmm. Don't come back to me and ask me if it's appropriate to compliment a woman at work skirt or if it's okay to buy a woman a drink. Like, just don't don't come to me with that kind of stuff. You guys go figure that out for yourselves. But I think what I was getting at was the proximity to understand, to emotionally connect yes. so this to the is, issue So before you start asking the questions. Yes, but I still think that's, that's, so, that's such a burden. That's such a burden for them. Of course, it's emotional labor. Yeah, yes. yeah. So, like, I don't, for me, what I'm finding, like, my the objective of this book, right? So yes, I have the agents and the publisher, and they're like, "Let's get on the list." And meow, meow, meow. I'm like, "No, my work is with the women in the unions and the automobile unions in Michigan. My work is in King County, Pennsylvania, who voted for Obama in two cycles and then went to Trump mm-hmm. in 2016. That is where my work is, not on the New York Times bestseller list. Like, mind you, sure, at times, if you, yes, of course, fine. But um, 100% of the proceeds are being donated to marginalized um, groups working to protect um, women of color. So, yes, great. Those okay. sales would be helpful. However, I think that we have so much work to do in our lifetime around not hating ourselves so therefore we have to hate somebody else Mm -hmm. that I can't say right now like, hey, go get in proximity. Mm. I'm inclined to be like, no, go get in proximity with one of your other white sisters that that might have read D'Angelo's book. Like that's your proximity now. I, you don't need to be sitting on a stoop in Fort Greene to have a conversation with a woman who's experienced that kind of trauma. Like, I don't know. Find that on Instagram because it's all over mine mm-hmm. and I'm not creating that content. So I think there is this idea of proximity, but like in my my beautiful world, the proximity is how we're breaking bread together, not the emotional labor and burden of people explaining that to you. I just, there's too mm-hmm. many resources mm-hmm. for us to be like, well, we all got to be more in proximity. No, we got to get more in proximity with ourselves as human, being more forgiving of our failings, being more willing to look at what we really did in the past. So we don't have to do it in the future. Get more in proximity to the information that is already very, very available and very, very free. Compensate the people who deserve to be compensated for it. And then once we get in proximity with all of those things, then we have to get in proximity being super comfortable with watching all of our systems crumble. And then the proximity that we get to have after that is when we get to be human to human with each other. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I don't know how to explain then why white folks don't, don't care or work towards dismantling the machine enough uh, when they know that it's wrong. So I'm talking about, uh, you know, mass incarceration, right? It's like, where are you in this fight? Why is it always people of color who are going to bat? Why is it always, you know, people of color on the front lines? If you know it, if you've learned it, if you've read about it, why aren't you fighting? And for me, it's like a way to hack, hack that is to be emotionally connected to the issues. How do you get emotionally connected to the issues? How do you get people to care about shit that's happening that's not right, humanitarian violations, constitutional violations. Well, I think in that regard, your argument of proximity is accurate 
and I'll lean on the theory that it's impossible to hate a stranger whose story you know. Up close, yeah. Right, but you don't need to be able to, you don't need to be three feet away from that person. My very good friend, Chris Wilson, wrote the master plan about his life as an incarcerated individual and what his life looks like afterward. Mm -hmm. And like, you can just buy that book Mm -hmm. and get into the horror of that experience and the wrestling that he is still doing with himself as a human being and the wrestling he's doing with himself and his, uh, with regards to his relationship with his mother, which is a universal wrestle. does that put you on the front line tomorrow? Well, so, it doesn't. So here's... It, made it, it might, so, but it might listen, not. Listen, I'm right with you with like, how come everyone isn't losing their minds about everything? <laughs> Definitely me on everything from like uh, yeah. whales to incarceration to, yeah. you know... yeah. I can really get real cranky about everything mm-hmm. and like want to shake everyone's shoulders on it. But the reason why... I have found in my research that white people are not super engaged in the subjects is I have heard the following. I don't know where to start. I don't know what's true when I do find it. I don't think there's anything I can do to really contribute. You can have my $25. You can have my $2,500. You can even have my vote. But does that really matter? And... I don't know which one to pick and I'm passionate about so much, but let's be real, Sally, none of these things have any impact on my life. So if you back into them in the, in the opposite way, if they have no impact in their life, there's no sense of urgency. And because we're so good at babysitting our to-do list before we're good at babysitting our hearts and sort of our meaning and purpose, we're just going to like order the birthday presents. We're going to, you know, book the contractor to repaint the the kitchen. Like we're just going to do all that stuff to fill our time because that's actually urgent in our life, though superficial, but that is what we have to do to get to the next month. So there's no sense of urgency. I think the next one was, is how do I know that I'm, that I'm making an impact? We have as a society suggested that the only way to be f- civic is often voting and paying your taxes on April 14th, every single year and or donating money, post-natural disaster to the Red Cross, right? So the only way that we've taught ourselves to be civically engaged is through money. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. As opposed to time and energy. Or ideas or or questions. Mm -hmm. Working on Mm -hmm. not hating yourself as much. Or healing yourself, Mm -hmm. healing your family, Mm -hmm. healing Mm -hmm. your community. If I can only give $25 or $2,500, like one, if... If, if that's an easy give for me, well, then why don't I just give that and go back to my Netflix series? Because there's nothing else I can do to actually participate and make mm-hmm. a decision. So then if we're like, no, know your stuff. Actually be a little bit dangerous on the subject related to incarceration. In my research, when I ask the, this demographic white women, where do you get most of your news you know, they'll just say news channels, news channels, and then I'll push. Okay, it's one of the big three television channels, and then I'll push even harder, and it's Facebook. And I don't really, I don't trust any algorithm on any social media no. site, and they don't either now. I mean, they really, they genuinely don't. Like, it has really very much been like, wait, I can't trust this either. Okay, let me just stick to the to the photos of my niece's daughter on Facebook, right? Mm. So, so 
this whole like difference between like an APR or Reuters is unclear to them, let alone getting further out of that concentric circle to very polarized distribution right. centers. So where are they supposed to get the information? And and that's a frustrating answer for somebody like Chris Wilson, who's like, what do you mean? Where are you going to get the information about yeah, mass incarceration? It's right here. You have to be disciplined in like really being focused on the subject to actually get to if you wrote like mass incarceration in google i bet google delivers chris wilson's book for me by like page two Mm -hmm. it's not going to deliver chris wilson's book for my aunt who's never googled mass incarceration before and it's not going to tell you the story of khalif browder that we all watched that's exactly right that's exactly right so so and then so 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 there are the four excuses and then there are the four reasons why um those excuses can stand. And then you go, oh, right, but there's the mass incarceration. But can we also talk about the fact that the United States is the 10th most dangerous country in the world for women? Oh, okay. So now you have to pick between incarceration mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Um, violence against women. Oh, wait a second. Did I also tell you about that? Right. And it's enough for anyone to be like, Mercy, what show are you watching right now on Hulu? <laughs> I don't blame them. Yeah, I don't blame them. And yeah. that's, I think, why there's this for me, I'm so committed to this idea of like opening the picket fence of being like, hey, I know you're I know you think you have to be perfect. Me, too. I'm a recovering perfectionist slash that craft closet better stay organized. <laughs> but come with me through this front gate. And no, I'm not going to ask you to like give all of yourself to saving the pandas and mass incarceration and da 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 da. But we have to get to a place where we're even able to absorb and admit that we are in a really atrocious, like species ending scenario mm-hmm. to be able to say, hey, everyone show up enough to like be on the front lines. You got to get out of your own way so you can be like, you know what? Let me see what I can do on mass incarceration and then have someone else be like, you know what? Let me see what I can do about water and sanitation. Mm -hmm. You know what? Let me actually see what I can do about what's happening. Let me educate myself around what's happening with Yemen. And let me see if my my elected official actually knows who who MBS is over Mm -hmm. in Saudi. Right. Like there's so much fear about disappointing yourself and failing um, on this. What is the assumed front line that people won't come? Mm. And if you, if you give, if you, if you break that open a little bit and be like, no, 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 I I, I actually want your imperfection in this conversation, not your perfection. Exactly. Because if there was a clear solution, we would have been there already. Totally. Totally. For me, I learned a long time ago. I listened, you know, I listened to so much Malcolm X and, and King and, and Angela Davis and, you know, contemporaries or people who actually haven't been killed yet. For me, it's like black liberation is the liberation of everyone. It's like it, nobody's free until we're all free. So it, I hate to, to make it sound like a productivity thing, but it's, it's just efficient for me to actually start with the most marginalized, work there, mm-hmm. and then we, we all get it. Something that we really like to include uh, in every episode is a woman of color who's doing work in social, the social justice space. 
that our audience can follow? So is everyone, anyone's work that you'd like to uplift? There is. Um, there's there's many, 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 many. There's uh, one woman. Her name is Denise Hamilton, and she's based out of Houston. She's the author of When Sleeping Women Wake, mm-hmm. which is all about this concept of what happens when we call ourselves in and ask ourselves the hard questions. You can follow her on Instagram at officialdham official D ham. And she's also the founder of watch her work, which is, um, a tremendous amount of content. In fact, for, uh, women in the professional space who are looking to conquer their fears to be the best that they can be in, in all lanes of their, their world. And that you can find her at watchherwork.com. Thank you for listening to The White Shift. Be sure to follow us at The White Shift on Instagram and visit thewhiteshift.co to get on our newsletter list, to access the show notes, and to discover our bonus content. And don't forget to share this episode with five friends. If you have any feedback or recommendations for someone we should interview, reach out to us at hello at thewhiteshift.co. We'd love to hear from you. A special thank you to Brooke Williams, who gave the episode a sensitivity listen last week. Finally, if you've been following us on Instagram, you might have seen us post some quotes from the brilliant and magical Clarissa Pinkola Estes. She writes, Ours is not the task of fixing the entire world all at once, but of stretching out to mend the part of the world that is within our reach.